David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. Well, this is another special episode of a Wednesday night class I'm teaching on the spiritual disciplines. You know, worship is more than the songs we sing on Sunday. We read in Scripture that worship is in spirit and in truth. It is our very lives given unto God in sacrifice. But how do we do that? What does that look like? And what do we do if it feels like our worship is dry and we don't feel joy in singing? How is it that we draw close to God? Well, I hope you'll listen as we dive into what the Bible says about worship. We're going to learn about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33. The psalmist writes, Instruct me, O Yahweh, in the way of your statutes, that I may observe it to the end. Cause me to understand that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. So it's not enough just to read it, not enough just to understand it, but to observe it so that he would keep it and that with his whole heart so that he may observe it, you see in verse 33, all the way to the end, to every single last bit. He wants to be obedient to God's law. Verse 35, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. For I delight in it. He delights in God's word, but he needs help in it. So he's praying to the Lord to help him to obey and to walk in his word. Verse 36, cause my heart to incline to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. It kind of sounds like a Calvinist. (laughs) God, I need you to have an effect on my very heart. I can't do it on my own. I need an outside work of your grace to love you more, to love your word. Verse 37, cause my eyes to turn away from looking at worthlessness and revive me in your ways. Cause your word to be established for your slave as that which produces fear for you. So how do we learn to walk in godliness? And the Greek word for that in the New Testament, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The word godliness literally means being a God-fearer. To be a God-fearing person is to be godly. And what's going to produce that? The psalmist thinks that your word is going to do it. Cause your word to be established as that which produces fear for you, so that he would be reverent to the Lord. Verse 39, cause my reproach, which I dread, to pass away, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. So he understands that the righteousness of the Lord is revealed in his word, his precepts. And he wants to have an experience with God's word, not just reading it, but to drink deeply from it so that he could be revived, so that the difficulties he's experiencing, verse 39, the reproach he feels, it'd be taken away by an experience with God meeting him in his word. So let's pray the same would be true of us. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we ask that, like the psalmist, you would revive us 
in your righteousness, that we would be more God-fearing people, more like Christ, as we see you and experience you and know you according to your word. We pray that as we meditate on these things, you would cause our hearts to delight and to worship you alone. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We got a few classes left. Uh, we're going to end two weeks from today. I think that's December 14. So we got tonight and then two more lessons, and then we'll be done for the semester. Tonight, we're going to be thinking about worship. And if we have a little more time, we'll talk about solitude. I might talk about that more next week, silence and solitude as spiritual disciplines. But we're going to spend about 90% of tonight, Lord willing, thinking on worship as a spiritual discipline. So what is worship? Uh, Dr. Don Whitney has written a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and this is how he defines worship. He says, worship is focusing on and responding to God. So first it's focusing on God and then responding to God. So that's worship. Two parts to it, focusing on God and then responding to God. It's a very broad definition. Uh, worship is more than the music on Sunday morning, though we often call that worship. That's a part of worship, because if we understand how the Bible speaks of worship, it's a lot more than music. So let's turn together to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, probably a very familiar verse to you as we think about worship. Romans 12, 1. Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, in light of everything he's written for 11 whole chapters, how should we respond to this? Romans 12, 1, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your translations might say your spiritual act of worship. Does anyone else have a different translation at the end of verse 12, or verse 1 rather of chapter 12? Your reasonable service. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what translation is that? New King James? Yeah. Reasonable. That's odd. So what's spiritual and what's reasonable? Well, the word here in Greek is logikos. You probably can tell what English word we get from that. Logic. That's why it's reasonable. Uh, logikos uh, is related to the reasoning or the mind. So it's not literal. It's metaphorical. Uh, another way to say this, it's the true essence of something. That's why sometimes it's translated as spiritual. That's how we speak of some things in English, according to the spirit of something. We're not talking about a ghost. So we might talk about sometimes the spirit of Christmas. Uh, if you're reading a Christmas story with Ebenezer Scrooge, there's literally a spirit of Christmas, three of them. But there's a spirit, kind of a sense, the true essence of something, the spirit of Christmas. Or you might say, we need to do this according to the spirit of what they said. So it's the true essence of a thing. You're reasonable, or the true uh, uh, vital core or thread of what worship is. And what is that, Paul says? It's giving your body as a sacrifice. 
all of it, not dead, living and holy and pleasing to God. We are as a sacrifice to the Lord. This is, Paul is saying, the essence of true worship. This is what it's all about. This is the true nature to give of your very self to the Lord. So the word for worship here, this is your spiritual service, the reasonable, the, the real service of worship. The word worship here is akin to a public religious duty, your religious rights, R-I-T-E-S. And so as you examine the word worship in Greek, uh, in our New Testament, it, there's about six different Greek words that all get translated as worship. Uh, there's no special secrets in knowing which is which. There's a little different nuances of it. Some, it's more like to honor or to revere. Others, it's to venerate. Uh, some literally worship, it means to bow down, to prostrate yourself, to fall down, or uh, public duties or religious rites. There's a number of different words in Greek for worship. It really doesn't matter that you know which is which, because I think they're all getting at what worship really means. It's about honor, reverence, veneration, to bow down. Because when you think about uh, the word worship, it's similar to another word we have, worth. That's where the English word comes from. Uh, if something is worthy, it is uh, uh, worthy of worship. There's, there's no other word. What's another word for that? It's deserving of worship. If something has worth, then it is worthy. And to properly respond to it is worth-ship. It has high worth. So there's two parts to that, which connect to Don Whitney's definition of worship. So you have to have a good understanding of something, an apprehension, knowledge. You have to know something's worth, and then you give the proper response to it. You have to know what it's worth, and then know how to respond to something that is so worthy. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, so you can see uh, this definition of worship at play here. So Revelation chapter 5. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do they get spiritual worship? Is that just like... Yeah, spiritual, it's metaphorical. It's the spirit of a thing. It's the true essence. That's what they mean by spiritual, as opposed to... Uh, another word in Greek, which is what we use for Holy Spirit, or soul, or wind, or breath. Right. Yeah, okay. It's the reasonable, it's the metaphorical, the logical, the true essence of a thing. I think that's what they're getting at, why they use spiritual. So Revelation 5, let's look at verse 9. So this is the worship that is belonging, deserving of God in heaven. Revelation 5, 9. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth so worthy are you to take the scroll because you've done all these things and then verse 12 the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands sang verse 12 saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So he's worthy. He's worthy to have this response 
because of who he is and what he has done. So you see the connection there? You are worthy because of the uh, sacrifice Jesus made in salvation to accomplish the plan of the Father, to bring history to its final conclusion, to break the seals of the scroll. You're worthy to do this. Uh, he is worthy, therefore we ought to respond in a certain way. You see that in verse 12. So they understood his worth, therefore they gave what is owed to him. So if you were to meet with a king or a queen, uh, they have a certain worth. They have a value, they have a dignity. Uh, we would need to respond appropriately if we ever met a king or a queen. There's an appropriateness to the occasion. There's a certain protocol needed, right? You have to curtsy, you have to bow, because we know their worth, their dignity, their honor. And because they have such a high worth, they're not just an ordinary person you pass in the street, there's an appropriate amount of protocol that has to be followed according to their dignity. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the Japanese custom to bow, and there's different levels of a bow. You can you know, find even charts where you see like the angle of the bow, a full 90 degrees, as opposed to you know, standing straight up. The deeper the angle, the more reverence is shown. It's the same in Korean culture and other East Asian places. And there was a bit of a hubbub about four years ago with a K-pop band. And if you listen to K-pop, Korean pop, they're just now really getting into like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. This like a five-person band where they sing and have this big dance routine. It's really, really big in Korea. And there was this one band, I don't know their name, but the equivalent of you know the Backstreet Boys, really established on the scene, really popular. And there was another group of five women, and they were up and coming uh, new artists, and there was a meetup between the ten of them, the five and the five. And when they met for this interview the day before a big concert they were going to have all together, the five women uh, apparently did not bow as low as they ought to, considering the reverence and the position of the higher, uh, more established, popular band. And this was, they didn't really know how bad this was going to be until the next day's concert. And when this new group of women got on, the entire crowd went absolutely silent out of protest. Like five or eight thousand people in the stadium refused to cheer for them. And their career was just over at that point because they did not show the appropriate amount of honor by bowing lower than the group of the men bowed to them at the interview. All that to say, worship begins with knowing what something is worth and then responding rightly. I'll give you another example. Imagine I were to put into your hands a porcelain vase. How would you treat it? Probably treat it well. It seems kind of expensive. You don't want to break it. You don't want to drop it. Then imagine if I were to tell you that vase you got in your hands, that's 220 years old. How would you respond now? You'd hold it a little. <laughs> Now imagine I were to tell you, that vase you're holding, not only is it 220 years old, one of the greatest French masters of porcelain work, 220 years ago, he made that. He was like the da Vinci of porcelain for France. And he used a technique that's been lost to time and never replicated. It's an absolutely priceless heirloom of artistic worth. Now how would you respond to it? You would hold it perhaps even more carefully. Then imagine if I were to tell you 
And not only is it 220 years old, not only is it the work of a master, Empress Josephine used to own that, the wife of Napoleon. And it was a birthday gift to her, and he bought it himself personally and carried it across battlefields and wrote about it in his diary. It's quite famous, actually. Now how would you respond? You'd be scared to touch it. Now what changed? Nothing about the vase changed at all, did it? Your understanding of its worth increased, and therefore your response changed to it as well. So we worship God by learning who he is and what he has done. And the more we know, the more we should worship. The more we know, the more we should rightly respond and give what is owed to him. Because he doesn't change, but our response does change the more we know how deserving of worship he is. How do we learn? What is rightly owed to the Lord? We learn through God's word, his character. We learn his deeds. We learn his worth. So really what we've been doing this whole class, so we think about ourselves, we've been thinking about input and output. We've been talking about Bible input, As we think about reading the Bible widely and reading it deeply, as we meditate on Scripture, as this flows into us, hopefully there's going to be a right response coming out, which would be, which would be praise, thanksgiving, uh, prayer, and even songs. So really this is the summary of everything we've been doing uh, this session as we think about the spiritual disciplines, as we think about Bible input and memorization and meditation, as we dwell on God's words and let these things uh, fill our hearts, then hopefully naturally we're going to want to pray. We're going to want to respond to the Lord in thanksgiving as well. And this is also the definition of worship. We have on one hand focusing on God and the second part is responding to God. This is according to Dr. Don Whitney's definition which I think is helpful. Worship is focusing on God and responding to God. So everything we've been doing this session is just training for worship. Uh, input for worship and training how to rightly say and direct that worship to the Lord as well. So if you think of it this way, then you realize that all of life is worship, right? It's not just what we do for uh, an hour, hour 15 minutes on Sunday, or even less than that with just the singing. All of life is worship, and you'll realize that worship not only happens for an hour or so on Sunday morning, not just all Sunday morning, but worship is Saturday night as well, right? Rightly responding to the Lord means sometimes going to bed early on Saturday night so that you'll be ready for Sunday morning. You're worshiping the Lord. You're responding rightly 
to his worth, to understand tomorrow I'm about to sing and listen to the word, I want to be on time. I want to pay attention and not be really groggy. So I'm going to worship the Lord by going to bed early on Saturday night so that I can be ready. I'm going to worship the Lord by making sure everything's ironed Saturday night and my clothes are set out and I'm going to have a plan for breakfast and we're not going to be, be scrambling and shouting at one another on Sunday morning. We're going to worship God by being well organized on Saturday night. Now again, we don't have to be legalistic about that. I'm not saying if you don't uh, iron your clothes Saturday night, you're in sin. I, I'm not saying that, but we have to consider what's, what, what is the Lord owed? He's owed our best. And as you think about your life and your proper response, uh, we, should, we should rightly respond to the Lord. So the first proper response to God for who He is and what He has done is repentance for salvation. That's your first act of worship. The first act of worship to the Lord is repentance in salvation. Because we need to give to the Lord what He has owed, which is our very souls, our very lives, our very being, our ambitions, our hopes, everything we own. We say, Lord, I give it all to you. And isn't that what Paul's talking about in Romans 12? To give of our very selves, living and holy to the Lord, our very selves, a sacrifice to Him, which is the pure essence of worship, Paul is saying. And then afterwards, afterwards, after that act of repentance to give yourself to the Lord, our lives as Christians should be changed. It should be changed forever. Our lives should be indelibly marked for His kingdom and for His glory. So that whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, you do it all to the glory of God. Because you realize worship is all of my life. How I think of God, how I respond to Him, all of it is worship to Him. Because that's what, the, what Jesus told the woman at the Samaritan well, right? As He spoke about worship. Let's turn there to John chapter 4. And as you're turning there, any questions, any comments, clarifications as we think about worship? John chapter 4. Good? Tracking along? Making sense? Yes. Okay, good. All right, John chapter 4, starting in verse 21. John 4, 21. So she is asking in verse 20, what's the right place to worship? Is it here on the mountain, this new kind of place we establish as Samaritans since we're not allowed to go to Jerusalem? Or is it over there in Jerusalem? What's the proper place? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So worship is in spirit and truth, Jesus says. It's not tied to a location. Uh, this summer, my wife and I had the joy of spending a week and a half in Israel. Uh, we got to spend the last day or two in Jerusalem, and Herod the Great built the Temple Mount. I forget how many football fields it is, but it's like 12 football fields. It's this massive, giant block, uh, so that the temple on top would be even higher uh, elevated. And the Temple Mount, uh, now the temple's not there anymore, there's a mosque, and Jews are not allowed to go up on that spot. And even if they were allowed, they wouldn't go because they don't know the exact location, exactly where the Holy of Holies was, and they want to go there. But underneath the Temple Mount, there are tunnels all around. And we, I got to go on a late night tunnel excursion with our guide, just me and him and about like six others. It was really great. It was kind of off the books. Don't tell anyone. We're going to go in some areas we're not allowed to go. Just, just go fast. No, don't ask questions. <laughs> but we got to go through the tunnels. And Jerusalem has changed hands multiple times between Christians and Jews and uh, the Muslims as well. And it used to be, hundreds of years ago, there was a mosque, not a mosque, excuse me, a synagogue that was deep under the Temple Mount in the tunnels. And they, the Jews built it there because underneath, once upon a time, was the closest place they could physically be to where the Holy of Holy was. Uh, right underneath, you imagine it's just under, with the location approximately where the Holy of Holy was. And so they gathered deep underground in the tunnels hundreds of years ago to worship, and they had a synagogue there. And eventually the Muslims didn't like that. They blocked up all the tunnels. So we got to go all the way to the spot where they blocked up the tunnels. And there was a plaque there and said, right now, you are on the holiest spot on earth. You are as close to the Holy of Holies as you can possibly be right now. It's really kind of interesting. And how should we think about that? We should say hogwash as Christians. Where is the Holy of Holies? Where is the presence of God? It's right here. It's here. It's over there at 8.15 and 11 when the temple of God gathers, which has the Spirit of God. You are the temple of the Lord. So as we think about spirit here, we worship in spirit and in truth. You'll notice your Bibles, probably spirit is not in caps, right? Spirit is lowercase there. But we should recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in our worship. Although the Holy Spirit is important and essential to our worship, when Jesus says spirit here, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Don Whitney in his book, uh, spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life has this to say about the Holy Spirit and our worship, which I think is really helpful. He writes this, Before we can worship in spirit and truth, we must have within us the one who is the spirit of truth. He lives only within those who have come to Christ in repentance and faith. Without him, true worship will not happen. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 declares, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So we can only offer to Christ a true worship in spirit and truth if we are saved, if we have the spirit of truth. As John, or as John writes about later, 
the spirit of truth in the Gospel of John. So the two words here, spirit and truth. So think about truth first. What does that mean? We worship in truth. At the very least, it means we worship accurately. We worship accurately. We should not worship a false Jesus. That's what the letter of 1 John, I think, is primarily about. Uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's an encapsulation of the entire letter of 1 John. Everything he's been talking about is the true Jesus versus an idolatrous false version of Jesus. We worship through the word. That's how we know we have the true Jesus. The Jesus of the apostles as they wrote. We need to make sure we have sound doctrine. So who we worship should be true, the real Christ, not a false Christ, an idol that we call Jesus, a Jesus of our own imagining. So who we worship should be true, but also how we worship should be true also. We shouldn't be like Nadab and Abihu. Worship is not about your creativity or self-expression. We give the worship the Lord has required of him, required of us. So not only do we worship in the truth, that is worshiping precisely, but I think worshiping in truth also means we worship truly. That is, it's a real worship. We worship in reality. It's a real worship, a true worship. It's not as if the Old Testament sacrifices in the temple, that worship, well, that was the real worship. And what we have in the New Covenant, it's kind of shabby substitute. Now, Jesus is saying we worship in truth. It's a real worship. This is the worship the Lord desires. It's not as if the Lord wanted something better from us, but said, well, I can't really have a global church and a temple tied to a physical location, so I don't know, just do whatever you want. It's good enough. Now, what we do as we gather, as we follow the New Testament, this is the worship the Lord has required. 1 Samuel 15 says, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So even in the Old Testament sacrifices, just doing it was not enough. Psalm 40, sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. It's interesting. He has required it of his Old Testament people, and yet the psalmist says, these offerings you have not desired. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that when he quotes Psalm 40 and says, and these are according to what is required. But he says, my ears you have opened, a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will. O oh my God, your law is wit written within my inner being. And so the author to the letter of Hebrews picks up on this and says, Ultimately, Psalm 40 is about Christ, a body you have prepared for me. It's the incarnation. Christ has come to do the will of the Father. And by that will, he has done away with animal sacrifices. So the will of Christ in obedience to the Father is better than anything that could be offered upon an altar. He gave his own self and thereby does away with sacrifices. And by the obedience of Christ, we can be accepted. Psalm 51, 
for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That sounds a lot like Romans 12:1, doesn't it? To give of your own self, that's the true sacrifice. A broken soul, soul broken by its own sin, offering itself to the Lord as a sacrifice. That is what delights the Father. So we're those who worship in truth, truly worship, worshiping accurately uh, who God as he really is, worshiping who God is accurately, and worshiping how God wants to be worshiped accurately. And it's a true worship really in reality. It's what he has required of his people and asks of us. And it is pleasing to the Lord to give our own selves to him. And so we worship by the book. We worship as he has revealed himself. We worship as he has required of us. We do not worship with strange fire. We worship by the book in truth. But we're also those who worship by spirit, Jesus says. We worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, the word spirit here in Greek, uh, it could mean wind or breath. It's pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, or pneuma, if the P is silent. It's where we get the word pneumatic, spelled with a P, the P is silent, uh, as opposed to something that's hydraulic, hudor, hydro, water, or oil. Uh, we have pumps that are pneumatic, that is filled with the wind. And so this word spirit could mean wind or breath. It could also mean spirit or ghost, which is why sometimes Holy Spirit has been translated Holy Ghost, which is interesting that Jesus in John 3 talks about the spirit as the wind. It blows wherever it pleases. Or spirit here can also mean inner reality, your soul, your spirit, your inner life. And so we worship, perhaps we could say, in soul and in truth. We worship in soul. Worship is from the inside out. We worship in our souls. Our worship should be more than outward actions. It's a worship of the heart. Worship is not going through the motions and just expecting God to be happy with that. I did my duty. I showed up on Sunday. I said the words. I sung the songs. What more do you really want of me? I obeyed. That's good enough, God. Just be happy I showed up on Sunday. No, God is after our hearts. What's going on on the inside? That's what he cares about. Don Whitney in his book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he has a wonderful, wonderful illustration about a man giving flowers to his wife. He says, imagine I were to decide to give flowers to my wife. No special occasion, not Valentine's Day, not her birthday, not an anniversary. I just decided to go to the store and buy flowers for my wife, surprise her with a big bouquet. And you can imagine, Don Whitney writes, you can imagine my wife receiving these, being quite touched in her heart, wiping a little tear away from her eye, and she asks, why did, why did you give this? What's the occasion? Why the flowers? And he says, it was my duty. I have an obligation as a husband to give flowers to you. I had to do it. 
I was commanded. Will that honor her? Will that make her feel cherished? No. What will make her feel cherished? If the husband responds saying, it was my joy, because I love you. I mean, it's a delight to give you these flowers because I love you so much. You're my joy. Couldn't stop thinking about you today. So I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get some flowers for her. I'm going to surprise her because I love her so much. I mean, why are we doing all this? What's the point? Why put yourself through all this? Doing the homework, I ask? Will this honor God? Think about Deuteronomy 6. You shall what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, all your might. Love the Lord. Love Him. Why did you read your Bible today? You might imagine the Lord asking, just like the wife asked, why the flowers? Why the occasion? Why the prayer? Why the songs? Why the Bible? Why the memorization? Why the meditation on all of this? Why, why put up with the silly homework David makes you do? Why do all this? You might imagine the Lord asking, because I was commanded, because I was guilted into it, because I thought, well, I better do this or God might be upset with me. Will that honor the Lord? I should say, it's my joy. It's my joy to spend time in this word. He's worthy of our affections and not our obligations. So you might be thinking, is this kind of emotionalism? I'm not comfortable with this. Are you saying I got to cry during worship? I should be feeling all these fuzzies? No, the spiritual disciplines, let's, let's be reminded here. The spiritual disciplines are rooted in justification. I said that on the first time we met. The spiritual disciplines have to be rooted in justification. We don't draw near to God because we felt close to him during a song, and when the, the, the octave got a little higher, we felt and got closer to God. That doesn't get you closer to the Lord. Jesus brought you close to the Lord. You are right now as close to the Lord as you ever could possibly be because he split the curtain in two, and he brought you in as a forerunner into the holies of holies and has sprinkled you clean with his blood. That is why you are close. If you are in Christ, you are as close to God as you will ever be. You don't get any closer through the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines bring your subjective experience into line with your objective reality. The spiritual disciplines bring your subjective experiences, your state of mind, your thoughts, your emotions. It brings that subjective experience into your objective reality. How you feel and who you are are not the same. If you are in Christ, then you may not feel every day close to God, but you are close to God. You are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ right now, for you have died and your life has been hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. You might be saying, it doesn't feel that way, David. I don't feel close to the Lord all the time. I don't feel his presence or his nearness. It, 
ebbs and flows. You might say, my worship sometimes feels really, really dry. And I just listen to the music and I just feel nothing. So what do we do? What do we do if our worship feels dry? If we read our scriptures, if we try to pray and we just don't feel close to the Lord, what should we do? I want to give you three practical things that I would encourage you to do. If your worship feels dry, three things I would encourage you to do. Number one, I would encourage you to cry out to the Lord. Just cry out to Him. Cry out for renewed awareness of His presence and His closeness and His love. Jesus said in John 7:38, He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Cry out to the Lord and say, It doesn't feel that way. It feels dry. It doesn't feel like a fountain of living water flowing out of my heart. Start by crying out to him, getting on your knees and saying, I don't want it to be dry, Lord. I want this, rivers of living water flowing out of me. That's what I want, God. Second, I would encourage you, spend some time journaling. Spend some time journaling in self-diagnosis. Get out some paper and a pen. Spend some time alone and just spend some time journaling, writing out your thoughts in self-diagnosis. Spend some time sitting down with your own soul and have a conversation with yourself. That's what the psalmist did. You remember Psalm 42 and 43? Why are you in despair, O my soul? It's an odd way of speaking, isn't it? Self, what's wrong with you? Why? Why are you so troubled, O oh my soul? He uses his soul to speak to his soul. His own self is having a conversation with his self. He's preaching to himself. He's interrogating his own heart. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? And then he preaches to himself. He reminds himself of truth. Wait for God, for I shall still praise him. Doesn't feel like I shall ever still praise him, but listen, listen, self, self, get a hold of yourself. You know what you need to do? You need to wait for God. For I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. Sometimes it's good for yourself to have a conversation with yourself. Think, dig deep, write out your heart. Is there unrepentant sin? Is there a situation I didn't handle very well? Do I have unmet expectations? Am I secretly bitter toward the Lord because my life isn't going the way I think it should? I'm just frustrated all the time? And then just confess that to God and say, I don't want it to be that way. Ask the Lord to reveal what's going on deep, deep down in your own heart. Because Job didn't even understand his own heart. The Lord had to shake up that uh, glass container to get all that mud down at the very bottom stirred up so it would come to the top so that he could 
understand his own heart, how he was accusing the Lord of wrongdoing, and then repent of that. But on the surface, it was clear and clean water, but deep underneath, there was a layer of sediment there. So the Lord needed to uh, allow these things to happen in Job's life so that he would understand what's going on down there at the very, very bottom of his own heart. And the third thing I would encourage you to do, if you're feeling dry in your worship, third thing, I would encourage you to begin a habit of hymn singing, H-Y-M-N. I encourage you to begin a habit of some private hymn singing. Songs have a wonderful way of connecting head and heart. Hymns connect together for us doctrine and affection, logic and poetry, creed and melody, things you know and things you feel that right now are kind of disconnected together. Listening to Christian songs and even actively bodily engaging with your own mind and heart and voice, these songs can help jumpstart a cold engine on a winter day. We need some outside help. We need another voice to help warm up our own hearts. Here's what Dr. Don Whitney said in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I think it's really, really helpful. It's three paragraphs long, but I think it's going to help us and encourage us tonight. Dr. Whitney said this, How can we worship God publicly once each week when we do not care to worship Him privately through the week? Can we expect the flames of our worship of God to burn brightly in public on the Lord's day when they barely flicker for Him in secret on other days? Could it be that our corporate worship experience often dissatisfies us because we do not pursue satisfying worship in private? We must not forget, however, that God expects us to worship privately so He can bless us. We minimize our joy when we neglect the daily worship of God in private. What an incredible blessing that God does not limit our access to Him and the enjoyment of His presence to only one day a week. Every day, the strength, guidance, encouragement, forgiveness, joy, and all that God is awaits us. You will never live a day, Christian, without an invitation to grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ himself that day. Think of it. The Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to meet with you privately for as long as you want, willing and even eager to meet with you every day. Suppose you had been one of the thousands who followed Jesus around for much of the last three years of his earthly ministry. Can you imagine how excited you would be if one of his disciples said, the master sent me to tell you that he is willing to meet with you in private whenever you're ready and for as much time as you want to spend and he'll be expecting you most every day. What a privilege. Who would have complained about this privilege? 
Who would have complained about this expectation of Jesus to meet with them? Well, that marvelous privilege and expectation actually does belong to you today, tomorrow, and always. Exercise this privilege and fulfill this expectation for the glory and enjoyment of God forever. Don Whitney writes, so how do we do it? How do we exercise this privilege of worship? Well, first of all, it begins with finding time to do it. It begins with finding time to do it. It begins with minimizing distractions so you can focus on it. So I'd encourage you, make some time to get alone. Jesus did. Uh, I'll have more time to look at this next week, I think. But Jesus sought times of solitude. He went up to the mountain to pray. Whitney has a whole chapter in his book on silence and solitude. I commend it to you. We'll have more time to talk about that next week. But what's the purpose of silence and solitude? Why get away from distractions? Well, it's not about solitary isolation like in prison, being in solitary. But solitude is about minimizing distractions. We have so many demands on our attention. I don't know about you, I hate commercials. I, ha I hate how they're trying to grab your attention. They have all these different tricks. There's always an alert on our phones. There's always a new email, a new post, a new headline demanding we look at it. It's good for our souls to sometimes just be alone, to be silent, to be left alone with your own thoughts. Deep thinking and deep worship can only take place without distractions. By the way, we do this already. We know we just do it. It's part of our culture. We call it a quiet time. Isn't that amazing? A silent time, a solitude time, a quiet time. So we know this already. We'll talk more about that next week. So here's your homework for tonight. Here's your homework. I want you to find time before we meet next week for 30 minutes of private hymn singing. Thirty minutes of private hymn singing. You might be saying, I don't have any hymns at home. Oh, look at this. <laughs> you want to help pass them out, Kevin? Okay. Christmas has come early. These, you want to help too, Michael? Sure. These are my gift to you. The, the church doesn't need them. Oh, yeah, thanks. These are the old hymnals we had in our pews. Sorry, we don't have pew racks anymore. But you get these. So this is our gift to you. You can keep it. It's yours. Um, we got plenty. Trust me. If you want two, you can have them. Do you mind help passing these out? That'd be great. Do you mind passing these out? That would be a big help. I also have a little half sheet handout I'm going to explain in just a second.
We're getting around a half sheet handout here as well. Okay, great. So you might be asking, what do I do during these 30 minutes? Well, in this hymnal, there's authors listed on page 869. If you know of a hymn you would like to sing to yourself, you're familiar with it, but you don't know where it is, titles are on page 890. If you want to find some new hymns, I'd encourage you uh, to look at a few last names. Thank you. Uh, I would commend to you, starting on page 869, authors are listed alphabetically. Look up the hymns of Barker, Bradley, Crosby, Getty, Watts, or Wesley. Those are all great hymns. You could learn some new hymns. Now you might be thinking, I don't know sight reading. I can't play a piano. I, I can't find the melody. Some of these hymns look interesting. They got good doctrine. How do I sing these hymns? Well, I would encourage you to go to hymnary.org. So you see that there, hymnary.org. Enter in a hymn title, and then it will give you a list of hymns. And then on that search page, as it lists all the hymns, you'll have the title, and underneath it, there'll be like author or composer. So if you pick a hymn, they'll say words and music here in your hymnal. Just double check, make sure they're the same, so you have the right hymn. Several hymns have the same title, but different melodies or different authors or different words. And then once you select the right hymn, what you're going to see, hopefully, most of them have this, near the top of the hymns page, there's a number of links. One of them says audio files. There's MIDI, M-I-D-I, don't click that unless you have a MIDI player. And next to it is recording. If you click that, it's just a simple uh, audio player. It'll just play the melody for you, and you can figure it out. So if you're not familiar with sight reading, so on the bar there, low notes are low, high notes are high. And if you just kind of listen to the melody, I'm sure you'll pick it up and figure it out. But, so I encourage you this week, find some time, get alone, do some private hymn singing, just thinking of the words, just singing and worshiping God. All right. We've got a few minutes left. Any questions, any comments, any encouragements, those of you who do sing hymns on your own? Any tips to give? Any people more skilled at sight reading or choir? Yeah. I Jeff. would say that the Spotify FBC Lindale Oh, yeah, that's great. Great. I hadn't thought about that. So we do have a Spotify FBC Lindale uh, list. You can find songs there. Uh, if you don't know how to connect to that, I think Andrew sends out an order of worship email every week. I think the link to the Spotify list is there as well. And it's on our web page as well. Great. Great. Anything else? Any thoughts? Questions? Good. Great. Well, we're going to end three minutes early, if that's okay with you. All right. Well, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. And next week, Lord willing, we're probably going to talk about the spiritual disciplines of silence solitude, and even fasting together. So we'll learn a little bit about that, Lord willing. Let's close in prayer before we leave. Holy Father in heaven, you are worthy of our worship. Jesus Christ, thank you for saving us. Thank you for purchasing us by your blood. You are deserving of worship. You're deserving of our lives. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to worship you, that we were made in your image and made to glorify you. And we have no higher purpose than to live and to be for your glory, Jesus. So we pray that we would grow as worshipers, that we would love singing more, that we would be deeper, more deeply connected to the history of the church and the history of its songs as we explore this week in private worship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.